I'm Michael Krasny, and I am pleased to welcome you to another weekly episode of the Gray Matter with Michael Krasny podcast. We invite those of you listening, if you haven't already done so, to become members of our deep dive interview and interactive global podcast, marked, I should add, by technical excellence and the covering of a wide range of intellectually stimulating and highly engaging topics with leading national and international figures, experts, authors, artists, and opinion shapers. So, do sign up and become a member simply by going to graymatter.show. That's Gray Matter with an E. In this episode, we welcome internationally acclaimed climate scientist Christina Dahl, who is the principal climate scientist for the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. She was named to Time Magazine's Next 100, and that's an important list. It's the most influential people in the world coming up in the future, and she's widely known and praised for her leadership, strategic thinking, and technical and analytical expertise as leader of the UCS team. She's also co-authored dozens of peer-reviewed scientific studies and analyses for general audiences and has made climate change more accessible to the general public and to policymakers. And she's especially known for her research on sea level rise and extreme heat. And she served as science communicator for Al Gore's Climate Project. A graduate of Boston College, she holds a PhD degree in paleoclimate from MIT. And I should mention just for cross-promotion that we did a couple of other episodes on climate change number nine with Bill McKibben, a well-known climate change activist, and number 29 with Molly Kawahata, also a well-known climate activist who was climate advisor to past President Obama. Welcome, Christina Dahl. So glad to be here. Glad to have you here. And we were talking a little bit before we became live here about how it's a kind of seesaw or teeter-totter with climate change. When you talk about it, uh, you're often vacillating between hope and despair or going between one and the other. Uh, and I, I thought maybe we would talk about the Cassandra side, I will call it first, the despair side, and then we can move to hope. That's kind of a natural and positive trajectory. Um, there was an article right before the New Year in The Guardian by Jonathan Watts, who is a global environmental writer, which struck me. Uh, it struck me because he said the world will look back at 2023 as the year humanity uh, exposed its inability to tackle the climate crisis right before the New Year. That was his assessment from many senior scientists, including James Hansen, who gave us a real understanding back in 1980 of global warming, one of the most famous climate scientists who's up in that category that our guest is at, is one of the central figures in this attempt to ameliorate the problems we have with climate science. What's your reaction to something along those lines? I guess I would say yes and no. So yes, 2023 was pivotal. It's uh, It was an, a year of unprecedented hot temperatures across the globe when it really became clear that our failure to act for many years was impacting the entire world. And at the same time, I think we have to acknowledge that it's not just 2023 when our failure to act was on display, but it's really the past 30, 40 years of inaction that have brought us to this point. And I think if we simplify and say 2023 was the year when we failed to act and address climate change, we're, we're ignoring the fact that we have had ample opportunities to address climate change beforehand. It's been apparent. It's been affecting people for decades. And so uh, we are just now really having to reckon with what that means and the point that we have brought ourselves to. Quite a reckoning, alas. Um, does this, for you, reach global proportions? By that, I mean the Paris Agreement was really supposed to be a global attempt to deal with what 
wasn't being dealt with, what wasn't being struggled with. Right. So it has reached global proportions. I think, you know, the Paris Agreement is was an incredible achievement in 2015 with most countries around the world signing on to this commitment to reduce emissions and try to hold warming ideally to uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius, um, though the two degree target was also mentioned in that agreement. And so, you know, I think that as we have seen the world sort of rally around the Paris Agreement, we've also seen the limits of it. It's very difficult to translate pledges that countries make in a non-binding way into policies that actually reduce emissions along uh, the trajectory that you want those pledges to to be um, achieving. In fact, there are countries, um, I don't necessarily have to name them, but we know who, what countries we're talking about here, that say, United States uh, and Western powers were in so long violating, uh, in violation, I started to say, of not only this agreement, non-binding, as you said, but also creating the problem. So why shouldn't we be able to move forward along a trajectory where we're producing fossil fuels and doing the kinds of things that are making a greater carbon footprint? Yeah, you know, it's the the United States is the largest historical emitter of greenhouse gases. If we look at the full historical period, the U.S. has emitted about a quarter of all of the additional greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere now. And that's huge. Um, And we don't necessarily or haven't necessarily had the incentive to reduce those emissions because it means big change. It means big changes to our economy. It means um, phasing out fossil fuels, all of the jobs that go along with that. that. It's a difficult thing to do. And so it's really been a struggle with these international negotiations between wealthier nations that are the big emitters around the world, like the United States, and smaller nations. Uh, There's a a very strong coalition of small island states from around the world um, who have really had to push these big superpowers to acknowledge the difficulty that they are imposing upon smaller, more vulnerable countries. Um, because of these historical emissions and ongoing emissions. And so, you know, every time there are these international climate negotiations, you see that tension crop up anew. Um, you see it crop up in the lack of commitment among U.S. policymakers to, for example, paying into loss and damage funds, um, which is something that is changing with the latest uh, negotiations that happened um, just a couple months ago. But for a long time, the position of the U.S. was we're not going to be paying damages for uh, you know, the consequences of climate change that are playing out in more vulnerable nations. And so you see it you know, over and over again, these dynamics crop up of the U.S. and other wealthier nations you know, kind of in this intransigent, rigid position um, and really having to be pressured by smaller nations um, that have fewer resources to show up at these negotiations to be doing what is arguably the right thing. And fewer amount of leverage, really. I mean, they just don't have the muscle, really, to compel the powerful nations or the hegemonic nations, for lack of a better word. Uh, So what comes to your mind in terms of changing that or, or rerouting it, if that can be done? Well, I think that there's been a real shift over the last decade or so within the climate movement um, toward 
really centering the experiences and the needs of people who are more vulnerable to climate change and other environmental hazards. And that's something we see here in the United States as well in the environmental movement, but we're also seeing it kind of galvanize globally. Um, and honestly, the youth climate movement has been a big part of, of that galvanization and highlighting of the experiences of um, you know, countries that have fewer resources, people that are more exposed to climate change. So um, that was really, uh, you know, the, all of those groups coming together um, really helped to push for the loss and damage fund that was agreed upon um, and now is starting to be funded, actually, which is really exciting. Um, but that's really an achievement that's happened through, you know, decades of, of hard work and advocacy. Um, and it's really a very hard-won victory. Well, I mentioned James Hansen, and he says the one ray of hope in this, and I always like the line uh, I heard again this morning, hope is not a strategy, but he talks about the necessity to really have youth move th move us forward. It's youth that presents the hope in all of this, where the positivity is perhaps uh, and ought to be mined. However, I'm mindful of the fact that there is also a lot of technology in the works, and there's been, I mean... Union of Concerned Scientists, for example, has all of these apps now that you can find out about coastal communities and how endangered they are in terms of uh, floods, in terms of fire uh, for other communities and so forth. That's all positive. But I'm thinking also about all the hope that's been invested in AI and other technology that maybe hasn't even been at this point pinned down. What do you see in all that? Yeah, I think there are lots of reasons to be hopeful. Um you know, I think that the activism within the youth climate movement just gives incredible hope to to people of my generation, for example, to see that this is an issue that so many young people care about, that they are willing to you know speak up about and and join together in global ways about. Um, and yet, it makes me feel terrible that that is what we are passing down to our youth is that responsibility, and so. I'm also encouraged by something that's the opposite. You have groups like Third Act, which is a, a U.S.-based nonprofit that is geared toward uh, elder climate action, right, and bringing together people who are a generation above me, you know, my parents and, and uh, you know, their peers. And so it's really exciting to see these, these uh, kind of pockets of activism in different groups of people. And then when it comes to things like technology and AI, I think there's some really exciting developments. Um, last December, I was at the uh, annual meeting of the American Geophysical Union, which is kind of the largest uh, professional organization of earth scientists in the United States, and just saw many, many inspiring presentations about the use of AI and machine learning to try to solve different pieces of this climate puzzle. So things, seeing things like you know, can AI help us to better predict where people will need to be rescued when there's a major flooding event from a hurricane? Can AI or machine learning help us to pinpoint the sources of methane leaks around the world um, or to better understand, you know, which ecosystems are burning in different severities of fire? I mean, all sorts of really interesting and new applications that I think will help us to become a more resilient society. On the other, opposite side of that, though, we have to be mindful of 
the climate consequences of AI, you know, these queries that are being run are incredibly computationally expensive. And so all of that power is drawing and creating carbon emissions, right? And so we do need to be thinking about uh, you know, better ways to be powering artificial intelligence so that it's not ultimately contributing to the problem. That's kind of a fascinating paradox that we've faced in terms of climate change. I mean, on the one hand, there's been a lot of talk about electric cars. I remember when it was almost, uh, well, coeval with the idea of salvation from climate change. But now we're discovering that the batteries have a lot of problems in terms of, you know, what needs to be done uh, in the way of mining to get, I mean, environmental problems result uh, from what needs to be created to make a Tesla, for example, or any other electric car for that example. So there's always kind of a double bind here in many respects. Uh, AI is exemplary of that, isn't it? I think so. And it, um, you know, it's sort of, uh, we have the same problem with all kinds of technologies. Um, you know, I think of air conditioning, for example, which, you know, there's no question air conditioning saves people's lives during heat waves. Um, and people without air conditioning are people who are, you know, experiencing heat-related illnesses, like heat stroke and even dying in heat waves. And yet air conditioning is in incredibly expensive when it comes to, um, you know, it's power-hungry, uh, creates a lot of carbon emissions. And so when we think about the fact that on one hand, we have a warming planet in which many millions more people around the world will need air conditioning in order to be able to live safely, how do we provide that? How do we ensure that people around the world have access to that cooling without exacerbating the problem? And I think what's really interesting in this moment, as compared to, say, a moment when we the world was transitioning to a phase of major fossil fuel use with the, the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, is that we now know better, you know, we still don't know everything, right? We still can't predict all of the consequences that any one technology is going to come with, but we know more of the things that we need to look out for. And so when it comes to things like EV batteries, we're much quicker to, to recognize, wait a minute, this mining has serious uh, environmental consequences. And if we're not careful, we're going to repeat some of those mistakes that we've made in the past. And so you do have a lot of people looking at things like EV battery recycling. You know, when those uh, EV batteries are at the end of their life, what can we do with them? How can we get the uh, critical minerals and metals out of those batteries and reuse them? How can we, you know, create, uh, say, battery storage power plants from old EV batteries? You know, what, what can we do to make sure that this doesn't just become the next major environmental problem that we need to deal with on a global scale. We seem so utterly dependent on fossil fuels, though. I mean, even when you think about our, our grids and the electric supplies that really increase the carbon content tremendously. I mean, we rely on our cars, we rely on our electricity. It's almost as if we're in kind of a trap here that seems to be uh, like a straitjacket. Yeah, I mean, fossil fuels are are have we've woven their way throughout every aspect of our lives, from you know the microphone encased in plastic that I'm speaking into now, to our ability to move from place to place around the globe. And so, when we think about 
the scale of what needs to happen to transition to a cleaner climate with net zero carbon emissions eventually, it's a wholesale reformation of the way that we move around, the way that we live our lives, the the materials that we have in our lives. And yet I think it's really important to point out that we didn't get here by accident, right? We got here by a very deliberate process of the fossil fuel industry making itself indispensable in every aspect of our lives. And, you know, on one hand, there's, you know, we have a free market. Companies are, are free to try to make money, you know, in, in all sorts of ways. And yes, there have been major benefits from the rise of fossil fuels. But the fact that we are just now seeing this major rise in EV adoption, the fact that we are just now seeing, uh, you know, the affordability of of solar panels come down, it's not by accident, right? This is an industry that has, um, throughout its history, chosen this path of uh, of producing fossil fuels despite knowing what the consequences would have been. When the reality is they could have changed their business practices decades ago to and, and, and transitioned to a much cleaner business model, and we might not have been where we are today. Very similar to the tobacco industry when you think about it. I mean, the whole trajectory and the way things uh, moved from the industry and uh, how they kept the lid on so much. Uh, I'm just wondering, though, what you think about a lot of talk now about liquefied natural gas uh, because of the CP2 project down in southwest Louisiana, and a lot of people are thinking maybe natural gas is the way to go. You were talking about jobs before, a lot more jobs. But again, the consequences, um, we're in dangerous territory again, aren't we? Absolutely. So the reason that the total greenhouse gas emissions of the United States have declined in over the past decade or so is largely due to the replacement of coal with natural gas. Because when you burn natural gas, it has fewer carbon emissions than when you burn coal. And so on the whole, um, you know, that is a good replacement, but there's still emissions associated with that natural gas. Um, and, and I try to use actually the phrase methane gas because natural gas somehow gives you the impression that it is, is good for nature, right? It is a fossil fuel. It is methane um, that we're adding to the atmosphere. So, Excuse me, but methane um, actually uh, is reading about the methane pledge, which doesn't seem to necessarily be being brought to fruition, but it, 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 it actually has about 30 times over 20 years the effect that regular greenhouse gas has. That's right. It doesn't stick around as long in the atmosphere as carbon dioxide, but it's a much more potent trapper of heat than carbon dioxide while it is in the atmosphere. So, you know, I think that it's really important that we be thinking both about these short-lived pollutants like methane and these longer pollutants like carbon dioxide. Um, And we've increasingly realized that if we are trying to meet our emissions reductions goals for the near term, say between now and 2030, that really trying to tackle that methane piece um, is critical. Uh, a lot more critical, I think, than has been emphasized, if I can uh, speak editorially for a moment. But a lot of this just overwhelms people. You know, I mean, they get into the science of it, not deeply, obviously, like you and uh, your colleagues do, but in ways that just 
thwart them, make them feel, you know, uh, powerless. What do you say to the individual, for example, who, you know, I'm doing my best to recycle and to, you know, keep my fossil fuel <laughs> contribution, so to speak, to a minimum and all of those kinds of things, but I don't feel like I'm making a difference. Sure. And it's, it is, it's a huge, um, when you step back and look at the scale of the problem and the scale of what needs to change, it's completely overwhelming. I think even for people who are experts in the field, it's overwhelming. Um, and so I try to make sure that people understand that yes, your individual choices are important. They're important in and not just in your life, but also as a societal signal of what we value. But climate change is a systemic problem and it requires systemic solutions. Um, this is not something that you know individuals working on their own can accomplish, but we really need uh, action at the at every level, from our local governments to our international treaties. And so, feeling like you are not doing enough to combat the climate crisis, well, sure, there's always something more that anyone can do. Um, and, and sometimes that does help you to feel like you have a little bit more control of the situation. But thinking about how you can contribute to this systemic change um, is also really critical. How are you voting? Um, what sorts of questions are you asking of the candidates that are running for your local offices? Um, you know, what what sorts of topics are you communicating to your friends and family about? So I think that there are ways that we can uh, move beyond this framing of, okay, I, I'm going to not eat meat on Mondays, which is great, um, but, and take it into a, what am I doing about this problem on a more systemic level? Well, here's a question that's very appropriate from Jane, and thank you for the question, Jane. She wants to know how individual citizens help move away from fossil fuels in everyday life, plastics, polyester, fabrics, et cetera. It can start to feel, she says, overwhelming. It is overwhelming. And I, you know, I try to think about what is going to be the most effective thing that an individual can do. Um, and two of the most effective things are reducing the amount of flying that you do, because flying is, is for many people, the biggest component of their personal carbon footprint, um, and eating less meat. Um, we know that especially beef is incredibly carbon intensive. Um, and I think people often see or, or set up in their minds this a dichotomy between being a full carnivore and being a full vegan. And there's a lot in between, right? If you can reduce your beef consumption by 15%, once, once, one less serving a week or something like that, that's something that uh, can actually make a difference in your, your personal consumption. Um, but again, think taking it out of the personal choices frame and in more into the what are my leaders, what are my elected officials doing frame, I think is, is really critical for people to be thinking about. Well, let's talk about those two, because on the individual level, a lot of people say it's too hard for me to suddenly renounce meat or diminish my meat consumption. And they say it's too hard for me not to fly, especially when I have job opportunities or want to see my grandkids, those kinds of things, or go on a trip. But the policy side of this in many pe people's minds is even farther to reach because they don't have organizations, they don't have lobbying 
power, which really is what gets legislation through, what makes a difference. And so they feel that sense of futility. Yeah, I can see that. At the same time, you know, we all can engage in our election process, right? We can all go to town halls where your candidates are speaking and think about the sorts of questions that you want to ask them. Um, Think about their positions on the issues that you care about. Um, In the same way that you might ask questions of your elected officials about things like abortion or immigration, right? So um, I think being willing to engage our elected officials in these conversations is, you know, it's something that frankly we don't see a lot of questions come up in, um, you know, candidate debates or we don't see moderators asking a ton of questions of candidates during debates that, that reflect the, the level of crisis that we currently have around our climate. Well, again, if you have questions for our guest, Christina Dahl, we welcome them and uh, comments are welcome as well. We're talking with her, a lead scientist for the Union of Concerned Scientists, about climate change. Um, I was mentioning James Hansen before, and he said, we've got hotter temperatures now than we've had in a million years. You studied paleoclimate How do we know something like that? How do we measure something like that? Well, it's actually really fascinating, and it's what brought me into the earth sciences and the climate world to begin with. So we've only been measuring temperatures for a couple hundred years at best, right? And and back um, at the beginning of those measurements, our thermometers were not great, and so they're pretty unreliable, and we don't have you know, measurements from everywhere around the planet like we do today. So scientists have figured out ways to, to pinpoint what the temperature of the planet was in the past using different geological archives. So one of those archives, the one that I worked on, was marine sediments. So they're tiny creatures that grow in the ocean called foraminifera that are made of calcite, calcium carbonate. As they make their shells, they incorporate different isotopes of oxygen in their shells. They then die, they fall into the marine sediments below, and they sort of uh, stack up over time so that you taking a, a sample of that sediment over time is like looking into a timeline of the past. And we can measure those oxygen isotopes, which are temperature sensitive, and figure out what the temperature of the surface ocean was millions of years ago. It's fascinating. Um, similarly, you can go to Antarctica or Greenland and take a, a core through the ice sheets. And because ice sheets build up little by little, year over year over time, again, it's like a timeline of our history of Earth's climate. And you can measure the concentration of carbon dioxide in tiny bubbles in that ice that became isolated from the rest of the atmosphere millions of years ago and figure out how much CO2 there was in the atmosphere. And so it's an incredibly creative field, um, one that's a young field, and it's really helped us to understand and situate our current climate within the context of you know the, the millions, billions of years of Earth's climate that we've experienced. Uh, I, I can see why you were so fascinated. With it. So Hansen is right. It's, it was hotter last year than it's been in a million years. You know, there may have been an individual year at some point that was hotter, but yes, we are at a hotter point um, than we have been in, I will say, at least hundreds of thousands of years. 
So, um, you know, James Hansen is, is an incredible scientist and someone who uh, really helped to shine a light on these issues way back in the 1980s. Um, and so, you know, he tends to be a, a luminary. And when he says things like this, he's, he's careful. He means them. Uh, we both have a good deal of respect for him, obviously. I had the opportunity to interview him on a couple of occasions, and uh, it was a privilege. Uh, here's Jerry from Aurora, who says, when, uh, when you speak of flying less, has John Kerry been made aware of this when he is flying around the world on his private jet while telling people to fly less? Worthy point. You know, a lot of politicians are saying, do as I, uh, don't do as I say, do as I, or don't do as I do. Absolutely. Uh, and I think I about that, yeah. yeah, with these international climate negotiations that happen annually, you have thousands of people flying into a location to talk about climate change. And it it always strikes me as unfortunate at, at best, right? And yet, I think as many of us has, have experienced as we've come out of the COVID-19 pandemic and out of Zoom world um, to some extent, there is, it's very difficult to get the same sort of uh, level of interaction, the level of conversation virtually that you can have when you're face-to-face with someone. Um, and so I think we do need to um, recognize that there are people in our society that we do need to designate as the people who are going to do a lot of flying because they are doing this work of, of ultimately trying to, to solve this problem. Um, but I know many climate scientists who you know, no longer fly at all. Um, I know many scientists who will only fly, uh, for example, for a scientific conference in a different country, if they can pair that with many other sorts of engagements um, in that same place, so that they're only taking one flight as opposed to flying repeatedly. Well, here's Rich, who's right on point. He's joining us with a question from State College, Pennsylvania. And thank you for the question, Rich. He says, is the guidance to fly less more applicable for businesses? Should companies be pushed to publish their environmental impact for things like business meetings and conferences? One large conference generates many tons of carbon. Yeah, I think so. I think we have a culture in the United States of... um, uh, of being very lenient when it comes to business travel. Um, you know, I, for example, have been asked to attend one day events that are across the country, right? And it's, um, that is considered normal, right? And no one would bat an eye if I did it, but we need to examine our, our culture, right? And as much as we have improved the virtual communications, we all know that there's room for further improvement, right? All of the glitchy Zoom things that happen. But um, it's, I think it's more, it's it's a changing of the culture of, of business that needs to happen to, to say that this isn't an acceptable way for us to be behaving. And, and if corporate reporting would help that, um, you know, I think that would be something, and we see companies voluntarily doing that more and more. So hopefully we'll see that trend continue. Hopefully, indeed. But boy, big question when you talk about changing the culture. I mean, on any level, on with respect to just about everything. Go to another question from Susan in Tampa, Florida, who wants to know, how important are mangroves to managing global warming? If they are, how can we leverage this? So mangroves are incredibly important. All of these sort of wetland ecosystems on the fringes of our coasts um, are incredibly incredibly good at sequestering carbon. And so 
um, it's really important that we try to protect those ecosystems. Um, there are even uh, places that are trying to restore and you know, build out their wetland ecosystems so they are, uh, you know, have more carbon sequestration potential. But mangroves also do double duty because in addition to pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, they protect coastal communities against things like storm surge during hurricanes. They absorb a lot of that extra storm energy. And so... Um, you know, for communities along the coasts where mangroves can be present, um, restoring those and keeping them healthy, uh, like I said, does does double duty. Well, what are your thoughts about moving forward at a kind of warp speed, which is really what we need, isn't it? It is, yes. So, you know, to date we've seen um, largely incremental progress on climate issues. And if we are to get ourselves where we know as a globe we need to be, be to to protect future generations, to keep people safe and healthy, the pace has to accelerate dramatically. Any uh, notion of how we might do that? <laughs> well, I think there, you know, there's potential for stepwise change, right? So we saw, um, for example, the largest federal investment in climate and energy in the form of the Inflation Reduction Act um, just a couple of years ago that, that uh, the Biden administration passed. Um, and this, you know, is, just provides huge incentives for clean energy, uh, both business level and individual level. And so, you know, there, there's hope that making strong commitments like that and then um, implementing those, those policies to their fullest will, will really help to accelerate things. Um, but we also have to be thinking about um, that acceleration, not just in the United States, where we have a lot of resources, but how to ensure that as countries that are still developing are trying to, you know, achieve the same standards of living that we've had for a long time in the United States, that they have access to the technology that will enable them to do that in a clean way. And that's the biggest paradox in my mind, you know, how we can in the Western countries continue to talk about the importance of curbing emissions, especially carbon emissions, and yet tell the developing nations that they have to uh, go along with us, or we're the example, we're, the, we're, we're essentially the mentor here. I've got a question from Reed, and thanks for the question, Reed. He says, how does Ms. Dahl maintain hope for the future of our species? All evidence seems to point toward an apocalyptic outcome. Well, that gets us back to, again, the kind of undergirding question of where do we find hope, but also what, what motivates you? What keeps you going? Uh, what, where's the passion in, in terms of your commitment? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think people are motivated by different things. I think some people feel very motivated by um, a hopeful, optimistic vision of the future. And if that is what drives you to take action, to um, reduce your carbon footprint, to be asking those questions of your policymakers, that's wonderful. Um, other people are motivated by anger, right? That we live in this world that has been constrained by our fossil fuel industry and the choices we have available to us are constrained because of that. I'm angry about that. And so that is what is going to motivate me to put pressure on different you know, levers in our society. That's great too. We really do need whatever it is you're feeling to translate into action. Um, on a personal level for me, you know, I tend to just by nature not be a super optimistic person. Um, 
And I tend to think of of climate change lately in a very uh, long-term view, just drawing from my roots in geology, thinking about the whole history of the Earth and how resilient the Earth system is. I mean, we've we've been through um, you know phases of what's known as a snowball Earth, where the you know incredibly cold. We've been through very hot phases. We've been through phases where you know there's been volcan- massive volcanic eruptions, tectonic plates moving around, right? Uh, and humans are just the latest tiny little slice on the top of that long geologic history. And so if we think about what climate change means for humanity, it can be very depressing, right? It's um, how are we as a species going to come through this? It's challenging. But if we think about it in terms of this, we are a part of this billions of years long history. Um, and that long after uh, you know, humans cease to look like humans today do, there will be an earth, there will be a planet, it will be inhabited by life forms. Um, and I think that that's something that just helps me to step back and contextualize this moment. And, and for me, helps me to realize, yes, there are going to be major changes. People will suffer because of this. Animals, plants, ecosystems will suffer. And something will emerge out of that. And we don't know yet what that's going to be. I can remember a conversation I had with Elizabeth Colbert, who uh, wrote a whole book on different forms of extinction. And I was sort of apprising her of the sense I have that many people just say, it's in the cards. There's nothing I can do. Uh, it's up ahead. Uh, they're like soothsayers of old. You know, it, it, there's there's nothing that can change the trajectory we're on. And then you also have these naysayers, and I'm wondering what your response is to them as well, who say, come on, global warming, you know? Uh, you were talking about how cold it gets. They think of how cold it gets, and then they say, well, where's global warming in this? Or I don't believe in climate change. It's, you know, a, a essentially propaganda from the left and they're trying to essentially do things that will um, make their lives more comfortable or their lives are too comfortable to begin with, those kinds of things. There's a lot of cynicism. There's a lot of you know, downright pessimism that doesn't motivate people and makes them feel, why should they be motivated? Yeah. What do you say to the naysayers? You know, I think this is a tough one because as a scientist, I like to think that we make decisions based on data and the best available science, um, when the truth is that that's not how people operate, right? Um, you know, I think within my scientific community, I, I see a bubble of people who who do say, okay, here's what the data says, here's what we should do. But most people are make decisions based on what's happening in their communities around them, what they're hearing from their peers. And excuse me, um, it's often a failure of imagination to think realistically about what might be down the road from the data. Right, right. especially uh, when what the pa- the picture that's being painted for you is a scary one, right? I don't want this to be true, Bleak. right? So I'm going to turn yeah. away from it, right? Yeah. But, you know, I think we we can't just appeal to the naysayers by saying, well, here's what the data show and here's the truth about climate change. We have to appeal in other ways, right? I think it's really interesting to see, um, you know, how people react when you start talking about the fossil fuel industry and its decades of deception. And you see people start to connect the dots like, 
but wait a minute, they knew this way back then and they were telling me something different in advertisements in the newspaper. They were telling me something different in the the commercials they run on television. So there's there's sort of a, a, a waking up moment when people realize that. But we can also appeal to the heart. Um, you know, the world unfortunately abounds these days with examples of climate-related disasters that are affecting people's lives deeply and right now. And so demonstrating this is climate change, these, these floods that have displaced a third of Pakistan's population a couple of years ago, this is climate change. This is what this looks like. The exacerbation of tensions in Syria that, that erupted into a massive civil war, um, you know, those were also ties to climate change in the form of severe droughts, right? Many mass migrations, too. Yeah. And so this is a, a deeply um, human issue at this point. And I think it's important to, to acknowledge that we've gotten ourselves into this. It's a human problem. And it's, the solutions are also human, right? There's a lot that we can do that um, moves us away from the worst-case scenarios. One of the ways uh, that has been brought up to me on a number of occasions to get through to people is to tell them this can harm children because, indeed, it is harming children. And if they care about their children or their grandchildren, then suddenly it gets through to them. It penetrates in ways that somehow their failure of imagination doesn't necessarily get to. I've got to get to another question. This is Amy, and thank you for your question, Amy, who wants to know, who begins by saying, many CPG companies are being tasked to make products and packaging more recyclable and to have more circularity. But I've found as an avid recycler that our waste management systems in many areas of the U.S. don't have the ability to recycle many of these. How do we get there? Yeah, I think um, it's a really challenging problem, and I think it's a problem that um, really came to the fore of people's minds a couple years ago when um, countries like China stopped accepting a lot of the quote-unquote recyclables that the U.S. was sending, right, and saying, you know, there's just, the economics aren't there and we can't um, can't make this work. So I think you know, often recycling is kind of the face of the environmental movement, but um, two of the other R's, the reuse and reduce um, uh, uh, pieces are are less prominent. And I think there's there's no way to get around the fact that we need to reduce our use of of plastics and other materials in order to address the climate problem. Um, we're not going to get there just by recycling. Important question from Francis up in Toronto, and thank you, Francis, for the question. He says, from your perspective, which countries are leading the way in environmental policy and what lessons can other nations learn from them? Oof, this is a great question and a tough one. Um, and I think it's actually gotten tougher. A couple of years ago, I would have said, um, you know, countries in the EU really leading the way. But we've seen some changes there because of, as a result of the war in Ukraine um, and the the kind of disruption that that's caused to um, energy systems. Um, you know, I still think that the EU uh, has made more progress than the United States in addressing its emissions. You have countries like Norway, where I think they're at something like 85% of uh, new car sales are EVs. Um, and so I, I think that there are European countries that are doing better than the U.S. overall, Um but, you know, that's that's not to say that any, any one country is really excelling here. Well, 
again, you go back to the Paris Agreement and you suspect somehow that that would radiate and that would affect other nations much more than it has. Uh, I mean, you're talking about political will here, aren't we? We are. I think, you know, from, you know, way before the Paris Agreement was was signed, um, we knew what the causes of climate change were and just didn't have the political will to be addressing them. And that remains true. You know, we have largely the technologies that we need, especially in the near term, to reduce emissions in such a way that we would put ourselves on a pathway to limiting warming to one and a half degrees Celsius or two degrees Celsius. And we're not doing it because of political will and because of obstruction from the fossil fuel industry and the way that those two things are tied together. You know, the lobbying by the fossil fuel industry of our elected officials in such a way that they are uh, making decisions that are good for the industry, not necessarily for the climate or for people overall. Can you give us some recent examples of that? Gosh, you know, I think, uh, you know, one example here in the United States would be a politician like Joe Manchin, who, um, you know, a senator from West Virginia. He's a coal guy, basically. The coal. Know, right, been, right. Yeah. exactly. And so, um, you know, you have someone who's uh, financially... Um, indebted to the to the fossil fuel industry also in a state where uh coal mining has been you know a big part of the state identity um and so it's a big part of what voters are thinking about and so that's someone who's not necessarily thinking independently about our climate they're thinking about it from uh financial perspective, from a, a business perspective. But also, excuse me, uh, from people who have jobs and have been doing it transgenerationally, you know, going back to parents, grandparents, and so forth. It's in their blood, it's in their lives, it's central to their... Absolutely. And I think something that often gets lost in, um, in the environmental uh, movements uh, conversations is that we owe a debt to those workers who have been providing us with reliable, affordable energy for decades. Um, you know, it really hit home for me. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and was was home a couple years ago. Um, and downtown, I saw a, a train go through, right? And it's, it's just open train cars filled with coal. And it reminded me of just how central that industry was to the, to the, to the region I grew up in. And um, just how many people put their lives at risk, really, to do this really dangerous work that remained invisible to many of us as we just flicked on the lights. And so I think, you know, there's there's some validity to the fact that Joe Manchin is, you know, thinking about coal industry interests as he's voting and developing um, legislation. And yet that industry can't go on as it has been if we are to fix the climate problem. And, you know, changing that industry also has benefits for the workers uh, who have been endangered by it and for the communities that have lived with the pollution around it. And so thinking about what a just transition looks like for coal workers, natural gas workers, um, and other workers in the the fossil fuel energy industry is really critical, right? We and I I think it's very important that we don't discount the role that those workers have played in keeping our lives comfortable and safe. 
Uh, I agree with you completely, though. I must say, and Joe Manchin is considering maybe a no-labels run for president. That's another thing we might contemplate. But I'm contemplating and thinking and reflecting on the... I remember you you work with former Vice President Gore, and I interviewed him a couple times. There was always a sense that these jobs would somehow turn into green jobs. And government has failed on that. I mean, it's provided some of that, but you think of all those coal workers and are in terms of getting equal pay type of jobs or jobs that can compensate them in a way that going into the mines and putting themselves at terrible risk in terms of their lungs and everything else, much healthier type of jobs, not there. And in yeah. too many instances, they're just not there. Yeah, there's no question that we need to be doing a lot more. Um, and as we wean ourselves off of fossil fuels and we see more and more workers affected by that transition, um, you know, we we have to make sure that those jobs are there for them, that they are able to do, that they are uh, equipped to do, that they are going to be paid in a fair way. Um, you know, it's absolutely critical. Well, you mentioned Pittsburgh, and Alex is one of the geniuses I work with on my team. And he says, my grandfather took a train from a small town 30 miles outside of Pittsburgh into the city. Those rails are gone now. Has the U.S. in some way slid backwards in mass transit? Absolutely. Um, you know, I live in San Francisco now, and there are, um, you know, you can still see like streetcar tracks where there are now buses, and, and our buses are relatively clean in the city. Um, but, uh, you know, there is, there just was a massive shift in the way that we transported ourselves to cars decades ago. And now so much of our infrastructure is just built around a car culture where the expectation is you will drive drive everywhere. Um, and we see a lot of resistance to things like um, you know, building new housing in cities that doesn't come along with parking, right? As, as, as legislators and, and developers try to incentivize a transition to um, communities that are less car dependent. What do you say about greenwashing? I mean, there's so much of it. Uh, we could spend a whole hour or two just talking about it, but it's real, isn't it? It's incredibly real, yes. Um, and an enormous problem. Um, we see it a lot in the fossil fuel industry as these companies try to position themselves as leaders in an energy transition, um, talking about things like clean fuels or biofuels or using carbon capture and storage, for example, um, to try to capture those carbon emissions uh, so that they don't affect our climate. Um, when you look at the percentage that major oil companies like Exxon and Chevron are spending on these kinds of initiatives, it's a tiny fraction of what they're spending on expanding their operations and drilling for more fossil fuels. And so it's really uh, critical for us to try to shine a light on the reality of the business models of fossil fuel companies versus the very sunny picture that they're trying to paint of themselves. Um, and we do see organizations like, um, you know, the United Nations in sort of the uh, businesses can sign on to UN-sponsored pledges about climate. Um, and they're starting to crack down on some of those, those um, sorts of uh, two-faced practices that these, these companies have engaged in for many years. Well, here's a direct question from Amy, and I like these questions that are so direct. Uh, she said, why doesn't the fossil fuel industry pivot into renewables and become the cornerstone of a new era from that industry? There is some pivoting. I mean, let's at least acknowledge the fact. But what she's talking about 
full throttle, so to speak, is just not happening. Yeah, Amy, I'm right there with you. And I, you know, I may have colleagues who know the better the answer to that better than I do, but it's it's baffling to me as well, especially because they've had decades to ponder the question. You know, when we look at internal documents from a company like Exxon, they were doing their own climate modeling back in the 1980s that has accurately predicted where we are today based on the burning of fossil fuels. And so how they didn't in that moment say, huh, maybe there's a cleaner way that we can be positioning ourselves so that when the world uh, makes this transition, uh, we are part of it and we are ready for it and we are profitable because of it. It took pressure on them to move forward to the degree that they have, and that's very incremental, to put it mildly. They need a lot more pressure. Here's Dan who says, what about carbon credits? Do they do any good? You know, the carbon credits market is very fuzzy. And so um, there have been a lot of studies recently that have indicated that a lot of the credits um, that, that you might say, if you're trying to offset the emissions from a cross-country flight, for example, um, that a lot of those uh, credits are, are, are bogus and they're not really happening. So for credits to really be meaningful, they need to be taking carbon out of the atmosphere in a way that wouldn't have happened without those credits. So is it new trees planted, you know, not just maintaining a forest and many of the other ways that, that uh, companies can, can say that they're reducing emissions. So I would be very wary of the carbon credits um, piece of things and focus instead on sort of reducing um, personal emissions if that's, that's what you're looking into. Well, when you mention forests, it brings to mind the fact we've been certainly focusing a lot on cars and fossil fuels with the automobile industry. But all that forest fire destruction that went on in Canada recently, there are also cement makers that were a big part of that, right? Well, yeah. So um, the uh, we recently at the Union of Concerned Scientists led a study that linked emissions from fossil fuel companies and cement manufacturers around the world to worsening wildfires in the Western United States. Here's how that linkage works like this. So these companies have produced oil, coal, gas, cement, all of those um, uh, fuels are then burned to create carbon emissions that warm the planet. And the result of that warming has been worsening wildfires in the Western United States and Southwestern Canada. And, and really around the world, but our study focused in on that area. And what we found was that emissions that we can trace to about 90 companies around the world are responsible for about a third of the forest area that has burned um, in that region since the 1980s. And so there's a very powerful linkage between what these companies are doing and the effects that we are feeling on the ground. Um, very similar dynamics happening with the Canadian forests. It was a different type of ecosystem than we looked at in our study. But, you know, we saw this this past summer, um, Canada was experiencing very hot, very dry conditions. It's very typical of um, the climate trajectory that we're on. Um, and as a result of those conditions, the fires there were just able to massively spread. Um and then in turn, those fires, as they burn, because they're burning up all the carbon that was stored in those trees, you get a massive release again of greenhouse gases that then furthers the problem. Um, so, yeah, just there's a, a very, um, you know, complex linkage between these carbon emissions and, and forest fires. So what do you do about the cement makers? I mean, people have to 
build houses? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the, we call them hard to abate industries. Um, so when we look at um, where we have opportunities to reduce emissions, uh, one of the easiest places we can reduce is in our power generation, right? So uh, moving away from coal-fired power plants and moving to things like solar and wind. That's technology is relatively well-developed, can easily be deployed. But things like cement manufacturing, it's much harder. We don't have a clear as clear a substitute. Um, things like aviation fuel um, or the fuel that's used by uh, in, in uh, maritime operations, much harder to abate. Um, but, you know, if we focus in on those hard to abate uh, slices, we're losing sight of the fact that we have this massive opportunity to address, say, 80, 85% of our emissions that we already do know how to address. Reed from Santa Rosa wants to say that he's admiring and appreciating your commitment to the science. Thank you, Reed. What do you attribute that commitment to? I mean, you're not necessarily trying to save the world, but in a way you are. Yeah, you know, uh, from the time I was a little kid, I wanted to do something that was like a helper of in some way, right? I think when I was a little kid, that was like, okay, I'll be a doctor, right? Because those are the, the people you see helping in your daily life. Um, but, you know, the to me, the Earth system is just fascinating, right? It's a beautiful world out there that, of course, I want to preserve to the extent that I can, um, but it's also just fascinating and complex scientifically. And so it's both of those things that that keep me going. Um, and I would also say I know hundreds of other people who are part of the climate movement. I don't yet know anyone who's dropped out of it, a scientist, an activist. You know, it, it's an issue that once you see um, the potential for what we could achieve, you really just want to keep working toward it. So science and technology maybe will save us from extinction? <laughs> Ultimately, you believe that? You have faith in that premise? I think that eventually, you know, we will solve this. It may be much slower than we want it to be. People will suffer because of climate change. They are already suffering because of climate change. Um, the numbers are not are, encouraging, excuse no, me. No, they're not encouraging. But humans are immensely creative, and we will find our way through this. Well, as we used to say, from your lips to God's or whomever is watching us uh, or playing a role in our fate, those ears. It's been a pleasure talking to you and also, as always, very enlightening. So I thank you. And I want to extend thanks to all who joined us for this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny, as well as those who will be hearing us on Apple, Spotify, or graymatter.show, where we urge you, if you haven't already done so, to become a member. Again, that's graymatter.show and gray with an E. And thanks, too, to the great Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team of Alex, Shannon, Chad, Colin, Jeff, Colleen, and special thanks to this week's guest, Dr. Christina Dahl of the Union of Concerned Scientists. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.